This is Nick Dodge and Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers signed a pair of bipartisan bills today to improve processing and collecting of sexual assault kits. The bills create a new process in which law enforcement must collect the kits 72 hours after they are reported and that the kits must reach a crime lab within 14 days, reports the Associated Press. The bills are intended to avoid a repeat of 2016 after the Wisconsin Department of Justice discovered that more than 6,000 kits had gone untested. Evers signed the bills to praise from both Democrats and Republicans, with Republican State Senator Robert Coles, who sponsored the bill, stating that it will, quote, systematically prevent a testing backlog of sexual assault kits from ever happening again. A group of Republican state lawmakers are calling for the removal of Milwaukee County District Attorney Jack Chisholm. They say Chisholm acted negligently in setting a low bail amount for an incident of domestic violence. The man in that incident would, days later, drive through the Christmas parade in Waukesha, killing six people and injuring dozens. The legislators, at least 16 state senators and representatives, largely represent the Waukesha area. Under Wisconsin law, the governor can remove a district attorney only if a local taxpayer brings a specific allegation against the office holder, and only if a subsequent allegation finds neglect, official misconduct, or malfeasance, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. Governor Evers has not called for Chisholm's resignation, but has requested an investigation. Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway responded to GOP attorney Michael Gabelman last week, after he announced he would seek a court order to require the mayor to answer his questions or be jailed. Rhodes-Conway said that, quote, This is clearly not a serious investigation, and it's clearly not being run by people who are competent or know the law or care about election integrity, end quote. The Capital Times reports that she first learned of this through the media and not from Gableman's office. Gableman also called for a court order for Green Bay Mayor Eric Genrick, Offices for both mayors have said that they have not had direct contact with Gableman and that the communications from the special counsel's office have been, quote, so lacking, end quote. Gableman made the call for the court order last week as he testified before the state assembly in regards to the review of the state's 2020 presidential election, which Gableman oversees. The student at La Follette High School who is alleged to have brought a gun to school last week was charged today. He's been charged with two counts of gun possession, as well as several other charges that are unrelated to the incident. The student has had bail set at $30,500. About two-thirds of that amount stems from charges for allegedly bringing a gun to school. All sports and co-curricular events at La Follette High School, as well as East High School, were canceled last Thursday after the incident. Madison police officers were also on school grounds when school let out. Members of the Madison School Board will be reviewing a report about early literacy at their meeting tonight. The 104-page report is the product of an early literacy task force made up of Madison officials and the UW-Madison School of Education, reports the Capital Times. It contains 28 recommendations for improving early literacy, including one to explicitly recognize reading as a right for all children. The instructional workgroup meeting began at 5 p.m., and can be streamed on the Madison Board of Education YouTube page. 
And now, on to today's top stories. Local spring elections are approaching in just a few months, and after a busy weekend online for one candidate, now two candidates will be facing off for an open seat on the Madison School Board. WORT reporter Ben Kern has more. As the year winds down, we are slowly creeping in on the 2022 elections. This includes the spring elections, when voters select their leaders for local offices. For the Madison Metropolitan School District Board of Education, it also means at least one new member will be joining them, as current board member Chris Caruzzi announced she will not be running for re-election last Thursday. Now, there are two names in the running for this seat, Mary Jo Walters and Shepard Janeway. Walters has a history running for public office. In 2012, she ran as an independent write-in for governor, in 2014 as lieutenant governor, and in 2018 for a seat in the U.S. Senate. She did not win any of those races. After several of her social media posts about trans issues heated up online this weekend, Walters held a press conference today near Atwood Avenue behind Revolution Cycles. She mentioned the education budget cuts from 2011 when former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker decreased the level of funding for public schools. Walters, mother of three Madison students, says she has been eager to help the public school system ever since then. From that point on, I was engaged in so many different uh, causes that it is easy for me to take on what needs to be done with the schools right now, and that is looking at the current policies, including the safety policies. And I think that we need to invite parents in that process and I am a parent. The safety policies Walters references include the MMSD policy allowing transgender students to use the gendered bathroom that they identify with. Walters has been openly critical about that policy, saying this puts the student body at risk of danger. I really didn't want to bring up the bathroom issue as a safety issue, but as conversations kept evolving around safety policies and the and the school board, I realized that somebody has to talk about this bathroom language and and the girls' safety. A study from the Williams Institute at UCLA School of Law found zero evidence for a link between trans-inclusive bathroom policies and any increase in safety risks. The claim has, however, been used in some states and municipalities to limit bathroom use by transgender people. Walters also says she plans to limit military recruitment within the schools, revise safety measures involving COVID, as well as implement a curriculum focused on life survival skills. Walters, who decided to run for office during the summer, was unchallenged until yesterday. Now, Shepard Janeway, who previously went by the name Andy, was entered into the race. Janeway, who uses they-them pronouns and is a member of the transgender community, has been involved with LGBTQ events and other activist groups. This will be Janeway's first time running for elected office. Janeway says they were motivated to run after discovering comments Walters made online targeting the transgender community, including a comment by Walters that she was transophobic. I was made aware on Facebook and through other forms of social media that there was someone who was running for a particular seat on a school board who was running unopposed um, and who held some particularly harmful views that I know from firsthand experience would have negatively impacted the kids that I work for and the kids that I work with. I was like, I guess this is the kick in the pants that I need to really step up for my community. Janeway has recently worked as an instructor at Whoopin' Soccer, a Madison-based youth education program that focuses on teaching the arts to low-income students. They say their goal on the school board includes supporting discriminated youth. My focus will be on ensuring that the policy decisions that we make have the maximum positive impact for the kids across the board, not just necessarily in regards to like protecting trans students, but as well as protecting protecting and ensuring that students who are who are marginalized, who are disenfranchised, have ways to bridge those gaps within our schools. 
Along with success for students, Janeway states they will be focusing on maintaining and improving the relationship between the school board and the teachers' union. In order to be on the ballot, candidates will need to provide completed candidacy papers and 100 signatures from supporters by January 4th. The spring election is Tuesday, April 5th. Both candidates say they are excited for this election and are grounded by the effort of the community around them that offers support. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Ben Kern. Today is supposed to be the final day for unhoused residents to stay in Rindall Park, the last temporary encampment formed by the COVID-19 pandemic. But residents of the park say they've received different pieces of information about when they are supposed to leave. WORT producer Nate Weggehout went to Rindall Park today to talk to residents about what happens now. So nobody seems to know what is going on. And we're not getting answers. It was a cold day today at Rangdell Park, where up until recently over 70 people had been living in tents. Today, there were only about a dozen tents left. The city of Madison has declared that camping will no longer be allowed at the park after today. The city had originally tried to evict residents of the park back in May of this year, when Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway called for the temporary encampment to be closed. But still, residents remained. And beginning tomorrow, the city will begin enforcing an ordinance that prohibits overnight camping. Residents of the park have been told that they could not camp in the park after the 6th, and that belongings had to be moved out by the 9th. But eviction notices posted around Rindall Park in November state that the structures, tents, and personal property must be removed from Rindall by the end of the day today. Residents at the park say that they have received conflicting information about exactly when they need to leave. One resident of the park, who went only by Garrett, explains the confusion. They had wrote 6th or 7th. They changed it up. One said 6th and then they had it on 7th. Nobody has a uh, for sure definite. Residents of the park also claim that city officials were at the park on Friday throwing away the belongings of residents of the park, further adding to the confusion of when they are supposed to leave. Video from Facebook shows city employees throwing away objects deemed abandoned into a garbage truck. One of the city's biggest reasons for moving people out of the park is safety concerns. Pearl Foster, who is with Community Action Against Rindall Eviction, says that the safety issues at the park were created by the city due to the lack of resources at the park. It was supposed to be a TPE, and under the TPE, Temporary Permissible Encampments, there were supposed to be certain rules to follow, such as running water and bathrooms. And when a lot of people moved here in February, when the eviction went up at McPike Park, those things weren't available. And advocates and volunteers like me begged the city for months to get more porta potties, running water, garbage cans, um, and other things because this um, the city didn't um, provide those. They didn't follow their own guidelines. Um, lighting is still not good in this park, and so um, the city neglected. The, the people and then blame the people for the neglect. The city has given residents of the park several options on where to move to. One of them is the new community of tiny shelters on Dairy Drive, which began moving in residents last month. The city is also housing some at the Madison Plaza Hotel, which sits across the street from Rindall Park, where contractors also provide support services for long-term housing. Some residents say that they would rather stay in the park, however. Garrett explains. They, a lot of them have mental illness, like they, they, I'm, I myself, I'm a vet for six years, 
and I have a hard time staying indoors a lot. So I go outdoors a lot. And I do that. I'll stay up for weeks and come back. So I was bad with apartments. You know? City of Madison employees and Madison Parks Department employees did not return requests for comment by broadcast. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The U.S. Supreme Court is currently hearing arguments that could overturn Roe v. Wade and could bring an over 100-year anti-abortion law back into Wisconsin. WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with gender and women's studies professor Jenny Higgins on what this could mean for Wisconsin. Abortion rights that have been protected for almost 50 years could be overturned as the Supreme Court began hearing arguments from a Mississippi case that could overturn the historic Roe v. Wade hearing. If that happens, Wisconsin would default to its own abortion ban. With me today is Professor Jenny Higgins, Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Obstetrics and Gynecology at UW-Madison and Director of the UW Collaborative for Reproductive Equity. Jenny, thank you for talking with me today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So starting things off, what could this recent Supreme decision mean for the future access of abortions in the U.S.? Well, it's extremely likely to dramatically limit abortion access in the U.S. and certainly in Wisconsin, as you say, our own state, while already restrictive, could face Um, even further restriction, if not criminalization, of abortion if Roe is overturned. So I want to talk a little bit about that law. It was written in 1849 uh, and is effectively a ban Mm -hmm. on abortions. Can you tell me a little bit about what that law is? So just as you say, we have this law on the books from the late 1800s. And in the case of Roe being overturned, the law reverts back to the individual states, right? So states have a tremendous amount of power when it comes to abortion access. So even though federal precedent is important here, we really need to focus in on the state level. We don't know exactly how that law will be implemented, right? So we know that if Roe is overturned, that law will, we will default to that law, but exactly how and when it is implemented remains unclear. So there could be some months of a lot of confusion around when and how abortion is actually criminalized in our state. The the bottom line is that this 1849 statute does criminalize abortion and will likely uh, lead to, if not an immediate than a short-term criminalization of abortion, meaning people can't access it here without breaking the law. So I want to talk a little bit about what would change. Do we have any idea what would happen to other things that are parallel to getting an abortion? What about providers who Mm -hmm. facilitate those abortions uh, or those who seek to get an abortion across state lines? Would they be charged? Mm -hmm. Do we have any idea? A lot of that remains to be seen in court and in individual cases, right? Because this law doesn't have a history, um, a recent history of being tried. To the best of our knowledge, if abortion becomes criminal in our state, people could leave our state to procure abortions in places like Illinois that are haven states or protected states where abortion rights will stay in place even if Roe is overturned. I'll mention, though, that 
Increased travel to abortion facilities is a hurdle that many people can't overcome, particularly if they are living on low incomes or live far away from a facility. And we have research here from the university showing that in counties in Wisconsin that have lost access to abortion care in Wisconsin, even though, of course, for the moment it's still legal here, when clinics have closed, have, have experienced significantly increased birth rates suggesting that there are already people in Wisconsin who, because they have to travel so far for abortion services, are bringing pregnancies to term that they hadn't wanted to have. I want to talk a little bit about the current state of uh, abortion access in Wisconsin. How does, mm-hmm. how does it look here in Wisconsin? How does it compare to other states? There's a national research organization, nonpartisan, called the Guttmacher Institute, and they analyze abortion policy at the state level in addition to conducting their own research. And they designate states as very hostile all the way up to very supportive for abortion access. And Wisconsin is classified as hostile to abortion. And what's very interesting about our state is that that's a radically different that designation than we had in, say, 2010, right? So with the sweeping change in voting districts and the, the change in our House, Senate, and Governor's Office from Democratic to Republican and the subsequent changes to abortion access, we are, we are now hostile to abortion access in a way that we weren't 10 years ago. So we have seen the implementation of over 10 different abortion restrictions since 2010, and we've seen the closure of several healthcare facilities that offered abortion services. So on Friday, Governor Evers vetoed a series of bills that look to further penalize abortion providers here in Wisconsin, and those bills were written by Republicans and the legislator. What do those bills sort of look like, and are those bills the norm for the Wisconsin Republican Party? Those bills reflect newer trends in legislation that we have seen in other states, right? We see these sweeping trends across states in proposed and implemented bans, most of them are quite misleading and are not based in scientific evidence. I don't think the the folks who proposed them had a lot of hope that they would pass, right, given the, the likelihood of the governor's veto. But such bills and such coverage of bills can add to the overall stigmatization of abortion in our state, particularly when they use um, misleading language. Circling back a little bit to the 1849 abortion ban here in Wisconsin, would that would that affect things such as contraceptive access? Are you do you have any knowledge of? Yeah, again, that's a it's a great question, Nate, and one I haven't received before. I I have not heard a lot of concerns about that to date, right? Because most abortion providers in our state provide a range of reproductive health care services, including abortion services. And the expectation is that those health care centers would continue offering things like STI screening and um, PAP tests, which, which are cancer screenings, and um, contraceptive care. However, it could be that certain healthcare centers can no longer keep their doors open without offering abortion services. So it could be that we see the closure of healthcare centers 
um, across our state over time. But that's hard to know. So I think that's all the questions that I have for you, Jenny. Are there any final thoughts on this subject that you would like to express? So we conducted a survey of all clinical faculty at the UW School of Medicine and Public Health. Over 900 faculty responded, and we asked questions about abortion restrictions um, and legislation, as well as physicians' overall support for abortion access. Not only did physicians overwhelmingly support abortion access, which is a trend we see nationally as well, but they were very concerned that abortion restrictions uh, harm patients. So, for example, over 90% of physicians from Wisconsin in this survey said that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, women's health in Wisconsin would get worse. Over 99% of these physicians were also concerned that legislation interferes with the doctor-patient relationship. So given that not only doctors know a lot more about providing reproductive health care than the rest of us, um, as well as the fact that doctors are very implicated in this statute that criminalizes abortion, uh, it seems important to understand and document their own support for abortion access and their concern about abortion restrictions. All right. I've been speaking with Jenny Higgins, professor of women's and gender studies and obstetrics and gynecology at UW-Madison and director for UW Collaborative for Reproductive Equity. Uh, Jenny, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate your attention to this issue, Nate. Thanks. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Bridging the Gap looks at the shift from mixtapes to playlists. The Monday Movie Review looks at a new animation from Disney and a tribute to Kurt Vonnegut. And we get an update on a proposal to ban cat declawing. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash... The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Nick Dodge. Thanks for joining us. Earlier in September, we spoke with Madison Alder Lindsay Lemmer after she introduced a new proposal to prohibit cat declawing in Madison. That proposal was just recently considered by the Madison-Dane County Board of Health last week and heads to the Madison Common Council again tomorrow. Earlier today... 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with Lemmer to get an update on the proposal. There was a time when if you had a furry feline companion in your house, you thought nothing of having the critter's claws removed to save your valuable sofa. These days, the practice is less common, and City of Madison District 3 Alder Lindsay Lemmer wants to make the practice illegal and has introduced an, or- an ordinance amendment banning the procedure within the city limits. Lindsay Lemmer joins us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 o'clock buzz. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about uh, declawing. There's a perception that that's a pretty simple procedure, but it's not, is it? 
Um, that's absolutely correct. It is not at all a simple procedure. Um, in fact, it is an amputation. Um, it is akin to uh, amputating a person's fingers at the first knuckle. Um, and that's largely why it is considered and why I consider it cruel and inhumane and why it is becoming increasingly outdated and it is certainly unnecessary. It causes um, pain for cats both short-term and long-term. It uh, can hamper sensations also and it can make daily routines for them like walking and climbing very painful. It can also uh, increase negative behaviors. Um, it's been found to increase litter box avoidance. And while decline is done to protect furniture, I have to believe that uh, litter box avoidance is going to have a more negative impact on one's furniture. It's also been found, and this has been, uh, uh, there's been a lot of research supporting this by researchers such as Nicole Moran and others, that it increases biting behaviors. Um, claws for cats are their first defense. And Without them, they can resort to increased nipping and biting behaviors, and this also creates a public health issue. If you get a scratch, um, it doesn't tend to have a lot of negative consequences, but if you get a bite from a cat, um, that is almost always required to be treated with antibiotics, and it can cause uh, serious medical problems, and that is why uh, organizations such as the CDC, the National Institute of Health, um, the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association, the National Association of Feline Practitioners, and many others do not advise decline in cats uh, for people who are immunocompromised. So there are a lot of reasons why um, this is an important thing to do right now. And it's, it's something that we are kind of behind the times on. Um, European countries uh, banned decline long ago. Eight out of ten Canadian provinces have banned decline. And here at home, it was banned by the state of New York in the last few years. It was recently banned in Pittsburgh. It's been banned in Austin, Texas. It's been banned in St. Louis, both the city and the county. It's been banned in Denver. And it's been banned in eight municipalities in California, including many of the largest ones, such as Los Angeles, um, Santa Monica, and San Francisco. And is your proposed ordinance modeled after some of those measures in other cities? It sure is, yep. Um, we looked at you know, a lot of the ordinances that have been introduced in those areas. This one is similar to what was introduced and passed recently in Pittsburgh. Um, it bans elective decline, uh, except in cases where, well, this wouldn't be elective, but it's uh, allowed in cases where it's medically necessary therapeutic for the cat. And we've seen in... Uh, these municipalities and in the state of New York, um, that it has been found to be self-enforcing. So it doesn't create you know, a lot of extra work for the departments responsible for enforcing the ban. It doesn't create a hardship for veterinarians. Um, it's, it's found to be self-enforcing. They tend to just abide it um, rather than having a lot of reports coming in of veterinarians violating it. Now, I'm, I'm curious about uh, the city of Madison's authority to ban veterinary procedures. Where does that come from? Is there a particular statute that gives cities to, uh, the opportunity to do that? Or, uh, or is this being done under sort of the city's general police power? Mm -hmm. So this would be within the, the purview of public health, Madison and Dane County. Public health is the department locally that uh, manages and enforces policy pertaining to animals. 
And uh, it, so if your ordinance passes, well, before we get to that, uh, tell us about some of the written testimony you've received so far. You mentioned, uh, I think there's a uh, some testimony from um, an alder in St. Louis. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the um, alder in St. Louis who submitted testimony. She was the one who um, sponsored the decline ban in St. Louis. And um, it has been... A positive change in St. Louis. Um, she has found, you know, like I mentioned, that it has not created negative impacts. It's been found to be self-enforcing. It has not been problematic for um, you know, veterinarians or for those who you know, have to enforce it because it is self-enforcing. So her testimony was largely around, um, or her letter was largely around um, how this has been a positive uh, impact for St. Louis. And I believe she'll also be speaking at the council meeting tomorrow night. And uh, have is there anyone who's spoken out in opposition to your ordinance yet? You know, it, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, there's been a small minority who have expressed concern about um, yeah, yeah, needing to have cats to clod for those who are immunocompromised. But again, that is specifically not advised by the CDC, the National Institute of Health, uh, among many others, um, because bites are much more dangerous than scratches are. Um, and uh, there's been a small minority who have expressed concern uh, about uh, passing legislation that um, would uh, impact veterinarians. Um, but again, veterinarians have been overwhelmingly supportive of this. When's the public hearing? Public hearing is tomorrow night at the Madison Common Council meeting. Um, the meeting starts at 6.30. Uh, folks can register online at cityofmadison.com. They can register um, in support or opposition, and they can choose to give public testimony, um, or they can simply register with their thoughts. Um, and in addition to that, there was a first public hearing last week at the Board of Health for Madison and Dane County, and I was pleased that it was unanimously recommended for approval at that meeting. So if your ordinance passes, will you look at trying to ban other unnecessary pet surgeries, such as ear cropping or tail docking of dogs? That's, that's a great question. Um, I, I think we need to look at how we can be you know, more, more humane and you know, kinder to all animals. So... All right, we've been speaking. We see. We've been speaking with Madison District <laughs> Three Alder Lindsay Lemmer. Thank you so much for joining us on the Eight O'clock Buzz. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. On tonight's edition of the Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson discusses some recent history: the successful Chicago Republic Windows and Doors Workers Sit-in in two thousand eight. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up Yesterday, standing December 5th, marks the day workers at Republic Windows and Doors occupied the plant in Chicago in 2008. The workers were given three days' notice. This violated state law, which requires 60 days' notice, with severance pay. The workers were victorious six days later amidst the glare of publicity, political, and community support. 
Republic gave them a severance package and two months' health care. The workers' fight back started in 2004 against a gangster union that represented the bosses. Their wages were frozen at $8 an hour for three years, and hundreds of their co-workers were fired without cause. They had endured discrimination and unfair treatment. Several workers approached a workers' center, which put them in contact with the United Electrical Workers, UE. The workers liked what they heard. UE had an earned reputation of democratic aggressive unionism. In November 2004, they organized an election, joined the UE, and went on to win their best contract ever. In 2005, the workers wore UE buttons, organized marches to the boss's office, and practiced picketing. They voted and publicly said they would strike if necessary. They won a contract on the eve of the planned strike with an immediate raise of $1.75 an hour, improved working conditions and benefits. This struggle set the tone for years to come. Unity of the diverse workforce, 80% Latinx and 20% black and 25% women, was not easy. There were hotly contested elections, intense debates, divisions based on gender or race, but the leaders were eventually able to forge black-brown unity to build a union where all workers felt ownership. UE had built community and labor movement alliances through the years of work with workers' centers, religious organizations, community groups, and immigrant rights organizations. Rank-and-file members had long-standing participation in solidarity activities, jobs with justice, and immigrant rights marches in Chicago that helped local leaders to get to know UE better, and regular participation in national political action helped the lawmakers know UE as well. UE started planning in November when machinery started disappearing at the plant. Workers bought chains with locks and organized a core group committed to civil disobedience. They were willing to risk arrest to keep the company's assets from leaving the factory. The workers' strategy focused on the Bank of America. The bank's refusal to extend credit was cited by Republic as a reason for the closure. The bank had just received $25 billion in bailout funds, but it was later found that the company had bought a factory in Iowa where the workforce made one-third less than the unionized Chicago workers. UE called on allies and elected officials to mobilize public pressure on the bank including a big picket at its Chicago offices, two days before the occupation. Congress members, most importantly Representative Luis Guterres, pressured the bank to negotiate. The workers occupied the plant after Republic failed to show up at a meeting with the bank and UE reps. They decided unanimously not to leave until their demands were met, vacation pay, 60 days severance, as the law required, and two months' health insurance. Republic faced a united, angry workforce inside the plant. They called the police, but the union had called in hundreds of supporters to come to the factory gates. The media had become a large presence. Republic decided not to endure the bad publicity, called off the police, and the chains stayed in their bags. The workers had taken the plant. Amidst outpourings of broad support from unions, community organizations, and politicians, including President Obama, the workers organized inside the plant. The International gave full support. After six days, the workers' demands were met. Republic gave in. A few months later, Serious Materials bought the company and rehired the workers. Three years later, that company decided to close too. This time, the occupation, again with broad community support and worldwide publicity, took only 11 hours. The company announced a 90-day stay. This gave the workers time to arrange to buy the factory themselves. Today, the worker-owned co-op is called 
new era windows it is a victory but there are only twenty-two workers compared to over two hundred at the old factory but for those that remain it is a good democratically run union business showing the way for worker co-ops around the nation and that is our story for today for the past is in past i'm harry richardson It's now 6.46 p.m. and you are listening to the live local news on WORT. week, feature contributor Teresa Yen brings you stories about bridging the gap between generations. Last week, we brought you a story about artists' struggle to retain their music rights over generations. Today, Yen looks at another aspect of music over generations, the journey from mixtapes on cassettes to Spotify playlists. The yearly Spotify Wrapped is here. If you're a Spotify music user, you might have glanced at your Spotify Wrapped statistics or even shared it on social media. The Spotify Wrapped will show you in slides your top played artists, songs, and podcasts of 2021. Furthermore, it will also curate playlists of your 100 most played songs of 2021, songs you have missed out, and songs you will most likely be interested in discovering. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the generational differences between Gen Z and other generations. Music streaming services gives you the option to put together your own playlist. Spotify also offers personalized daily mixes for its users, each mix individually curated based on the music the user listens to and add in suggestions of songs they might enjoy. But creating a mix of different music hasn't always been this easy, nor has it always been digital. Just two decades ago, if you wanted to put together a playlist of different songs from different artists, you would have to make a mixtape, a curated collection of songs that aligns with the theme or message, and painstakingly put onto a cassette tape or burn to CD. Remember, you know, you'd make mixtapes for friends or for people, for people that you had a crush on or something like that. Whether you made a mixtape for a friend or sent them a streaming playlist might say something about which generation you're in. For more, I talked with UW-Madison communication arts professor Jeremy Morris about the ways interacting with our music has changed. Have you made mixtapes before? And if so, what was the first mixtape that you've made? I used to want to listen to music in the car uh, with my mom, and we used to record fake radio shows that involved the music. Like, we would speak over top of the music to make it sound like we were the radio. Those are probably my earliest memories, but that would have been, like, maybe grade six or grade seven. But I certainly remember getting a mixtape. Uh, somebody made me a mixtape of the Smashing Pumpkins when I was in high school, and that was, like, a, a big moment. I had I had been listening mostly to rap and hip-hop before that, and, and this was, like, an introduction to alternative grunge music, and I got I got pretty pretty interested in that do you think current like spotify playlists hold the same amount of meaning as mixtapes it's 
different in the sense that like the mixtapes of old you would have to like write out the song names and you would you know there's a lot that went into the actual kind of presentation of the the, the mixtape you had to fill out information on the tape you know to let people know what the name of the mixtape was and know how the songs were linked with Spotify it's a little different but that doesn't mean that people aren't still investing a lot of time thinking about like the order of the song can I share with my best friend you know something that's really meaningful between us and therefore I'm going to string these songs together still think people are, are able to find a lot of meaning from making mixtapes for people or playlists for people you know I mean in terms of the physical process of making an analog mixtape when you were recording from one tape to another you kind of have to sit there and actually listen through each song and figure out what order it wanted to be in so that you could record it onto the other tape in order to make it happen, right? Nowadays, you could, in theory, just kind of be like, oh, I want to make a playlist with all songs that have the word love in the title, for example. And you could just search through Spotify and Spotify will pull up however many songs that have the word love in the title and you could put all those things together and so you, you wouldn't even necessarily have to listen to them right but again I don't want I don't want to attach a value judgment that affords a lot of really neat opportunities right? you could end up hearing a bunch of songs that you've never heard of before just because Spotify has this massive database of songs that you can, can kind of pull from so you can make a lot of really neat and interesting playlists through some of the things that Spotify lets you do I feel like the common thing between Spotify playlists and mixtapes is music curation but with mixtapes tapes, it is usually curated by humans. But digital playlists now, like on Spotify or on Apple Music, they rely on algorithms. What does this shift in the way music is curated tell us about how we consume music? You're pointing to one of the huge differences with playlists in analog and digital form is that the digital playlist is something that can be tracked and something that can be commodified in a way that analog playlists um, maybe couldn't, right? The kind of commodified nature of the playlists, right? Like it, who's creating the playlist? and how much of the playlist was created, you know, with a particular intention, right? The amount of data that's collected on us, we know that that's happening, but we don't necessarily know to what end. And, you know, we see that a lot in Spotify about their 2021 wrapped playlist. Spotify gives you kind of a snapshot of what you listened to over the past year, right? But all of that is just sort of a reminder that Spotify is constantly keeping tabs on what you're listening to. Do we see any sort of like resurgence with mixtapes making a comeback? Or do we think that digital playlists will replace mixtapes forever? Shortly after vinyl, vinyl got repopularized. I think you saw people turn towards tape as well as kind of lo-fi cultures that have come around with tape. The mixtape as a result is kind of useful there. You also have a a lot of hip-hop artists who have been relying on mixtapes the entire time. It depends a bit on, on genre and, and what uh, batch of consumers that you're, you're speaking about. Whether we'll see it return as a really mainstream form, I, I don't know. I mean, again, Spotify is quite easy in terms of the ability to make playlists. You can share a playlist with a friend, for example, and you can both collaborate on it, uh, especially across distances if people are, are living far away. It's harder to do in the, in the analog world. I think there's always benefits to each of the media formats that you're to use. You know, whether or not those are widely available is, is what's going to make a difference. As technology moves towards being more digital than analog, perhaps we are also losing some of the human aspect of music delivery. For WORT and Bridging the Gap, I'm Teresa Yen. Today on the Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson looks at two new movies. One on the big screen is a new animation film from Disney, set in a magical house in Colombia. The other on a small screen is a documentary about the writer Kurt Vonnegut. Many years ago, this candle blessed our family with a miracle. Our house, our casita. 
came to life with magic. That was a clip from the trailer for Encanto, directed by Jared Bush, Byron Howard, and Sharice Castro-Smith. This is a beautifully animated movie with a fine cast and fun songs. It's about an extended family in a magical house in the mountains of Colombia with a largely Latinx cast. Each member of the family is granted a magic power and expected to use it for the good of the family and community. We get an early summary of the family members and their gifts in an energetic number by Maribel, voiced by Stephanie Beatrice, a bespeckled teen who is the only one in the family not to get a gift. For example, her sister, Luisa, Jessica Darrow, has super strength, with her other sister, Diane Guerrero, produces beautiful flowers out of the air and is perfect. The family matriarch, Abuela Alma Maria Cecilia Botero, meanwhile, oversees all. In her youth, she was driven from her home. She fled across a river, carrying her baby triplets. Her spouse sacrifices himself to save them. In his place rises a magical candle that continues to burn across the years. Abuela struggles to a hidden mountain valley, and the candle magically raises a house before her. Our story shows a happy, prosperous family celebrating its youngest member getting his gift. Mirabel's young nephew, Antonio, a wonderful role by Ravi Cabot Conyers. In one of the film's more touching scenes, Maribel helps him get his courage to open the door and receive his gift. He now understands what animals say, a fun ability. His room is magically filled with all kinds of animals, but the magic is in trouble, and it falls to Maribel to save the day with the aid of her disgraced Uncle Bruno, John Leguizano. All in all, a fun animated movie with a surprisingly touching ending. The music by Lynn manuel Miranda and Jermaine Franco adds a lot to the film, a good addition to Disney's international movies, now a new documentary on one of the best American authors of the second half of the 20th century. Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time. What happens when a writer stops writing? Sadness is an interesting emotion. I prefer laughter to crying. <laughs> that was a clip from the trailer for Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time, co-directed by Robert Whitey and John Argot. It's written by Whitey. This is a labor of love for him. He's been working on this documentary since 1982. Whitey became a big Vonnegut fan when he read Slaughterhouse-Five when he was in high school in 1969. Over the years, they became friends and confidants. But I get ahead of the story, or do I? The story is not told in a linear fashion, but tells the details of his life in a very moving way that Vonnegut himself might well have appreciated. Certainly, that title says a lot in a few words, just like Vonnegut at his best. Kurt Vonnegut, Unstuck in Time, is a reference to his main character, Billy Pilgrim, in Slaughterhouse-Five. Vonnegut, not unlike our director, inserted himself into his own work, sometimes directly and sometimes through his surrogate, Kilgore Trout. In Slaughterhouse-Five, Chapter 1, is a sort of intro to Vonnegut and his life. The phrase, Billy Pilgrim has come unstuck in time, is the opening sentence in Chapter 2. Billy Pilgrim is a perfect name for the character who travels through time. As Vonnegut explains it, Billy has gone to sleep, a senile widower, and awakened on his wedding day. He has walked through a door in 1955 and come out another one in 1941. He has gone back through that door to find himself in 1963. He has seen his birth and death many times, he says, and pays random visits to all the events in between. Vonnegut obsessively wrote and rewrote Slaughterhouse-Five. It finally ends up as a science fiction novel. It was the only way the story made any sense. 
The doc eventually reveals the details of his early life, living through the depression, life with his loving siblings, especially his sister Ali, the suicide of his mother, and the passing of Ali. Ali's husband died in an accident, and Ali died from cancer a few days later. Vonica took her kids in at his sister's request. It shows his trauma as a POW at the firebombing of Dresden, his time as an early writer, and a lot more. A good, solid documentary, well worth watching. I highly recommend it. It's now streaming on Vudu and other services. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Ben Kern. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, and the 8 o'clock buzz's Brian Standing. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.